right, we are in Matthew, and we are up to chapter 14. We actually got started into chapter 14 because the last time we talked, I talked about the uh, one of the themes that kind of goes all the way through Matthew, which is getting Jesus wrong, um, misunderstanding him in the parables, misunderstanding who he is, is he Elijah, is he Jeremiah, what, who is he? The other theme that uh, is common in um, Matthew is one that we're talking about today. You of little faith, King James, oh ye of little faith. Uh, another one that we'll look at uh, next time, and we'll see these repeat as we get through the rest of uh, Matthew, is uh, tradition versus uh, the commandment of God. Uh, when are they helpful and when are they contradictory and problematic in that sense. So today we're going to look at, um, uh, as I said, you of little faith. Now the problem with uh, little faith is we think in terms of the parables uh, where, or the gospels where the disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith, and he says, if you had the faith as a mustard seed. Little faith is not tiny faith. Little faith is faith that does not continue. Faith that does not uh, focus in the way that it's supposed to. So let me uh, define faith here. And I, we could go through various passages with it, but you guys know these verses, so I'm not going to do that. Faith is trusting God. Faith is trusting God that He is that he exists, that he is one who uh, does what he says, that God keeps his word, that God is able to keep his word, and therefore faith is trusting as we go through this life that nothing can separate us from his love, nothing can end his promises, uh, but our lack of faith can end up creating chaos for us. In other words, there is an issue of not living by faith. Uh, and the scripture says we don't live by sight, we live by faith, right? Live by faith, not by sight. So in that context, I want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 14. Again, there are some things that in Matthew 14 we will come back to when we look at these themes later uh, particularly this feeding of the multitude. But I want to take a look at this. So we pick up at verse 13. Now in the first 12 verses, we have seen the issue of Herod getting Jesus wrong because Herod believes Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we get the story from Matthew as to what happened in the beheading of John. And so verse 13 picks up at that point. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, John the Baptist uh, is beheaded. Jesus now knows that Herod believes that he is John the Baptist. He's, John was already, there was an attempt to kill him. Jesus kind of moves out of public sight 
and moves into a more secluded age. He drops below the radar. At least the radar of the government. But he doesn't drop below the radar of the people. Now Jesus gets in a boat. The Sea of Galilee in, in northern Israel is a large lake. And it is uh, the case that the towns and the cities are, are concentrated around the lake. And one of the ways you go from city to city is to walk. Therefore, you walk around the lake. Or you take a boat and you can cross the lake or go up to a different place on the lake. That's what this, what's going on. Jesus gets in a boat and goes to a more remote place away from the cities. People hear that he's there. Somebody recognizes that he's there. And now people start traveling out of the populated areas to this place where Jesus is. And of course, if you go to Israel, they will show you exactly where this is. Uh, there is a church there uh, where the Sermon on the Mount uh, is to have taken place. And there are, there are churches in, in all of these uh, spots, uh, at least the traditional spots. But anywhere along the Sea of Galilee, you will see this kind of sloping uh, hills and uh, an easy way for people to walk along the, the sea and then, uh, and then come up into uh, whatever area they're going to. So the people come out. Now, I want you to see what happens in that context. So verse 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them. And healed their sick. And so even in retreating. Jesus sees the people. He has compassion on them. They are bringing their sick. uh, Out of the cities. And he is healing them. Verse 15 then picks up. And we're going to read uh, through verse 21. When uh, When it was evening. The disciples came to him and said. This place is desolate. The hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, "Uh, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up towards heaven, He blessed the food. And we know the blessing that he would do. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth food from the earth, brings forth bread from the earth. Uh, And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave it to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children. This is a very familiar story for us, and in some sense, it is going to lead us into several stories. But I want you to catch what's happening. Even in retreat, the people find Jesus, and he has compassion on them, and he's healing them. So now the disciples are saying, okay, that was good, but we have to be practical now. So send the people away. They can get some food uh, in, uh, in the villages. And, uh, you know, we can, we can be about our business. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. Well, we didn't bring food. 
We didn't plan on this. This this wasn't set up. We were going away so that you could retreat. We're somewhat trying to be secluded. And now all of a sudden we've got these people. How many people? Well, the Bible says there were 5,000 men. Most men in those days were married. And therefore their wives were also there. That means almost another 5,000. And then children. And they were not Americans. They had lots of children. And so we're probably looking at close to 20,000 people. Five loaves and two fish. You've got to be thinking about the disciples. When Jesus says, tell the people to sit down and bring me the food. Right? Okay, everybody sit down. (laughs) And then Jesus blesses the food and he hands them the food, probably in a basket. And the disciple takes that basket to go, there's there's more than the five loaves and two fishes here. And then the next disciple, there's a full basket here. And they come back, their basket's empty. He fills it up again. He keeps doing it. They keep passing out like waiters, right? And when they get done, they're each standing there with a full basket. That's amazing. Now, why not 13 baskets? What about Jesus, right? Well, Jesus doesn't need a basket, right? The disciples are worried that there's not enough food for the people and there's enough for everyone. They are all able to eat uh, to their satisfaction. Uh, why don't the what what are the disciples not getting? Well, what they're not getting is that the one who spoke the world into creation is there in their midst. And therefore, they are not limited by the five loaves and the two fishes. Now, you and I would have the same attitude because we would say, this is all we got. There's not enough here. But that doesn't phase Jesus at all. And Matthew gives us this story and then doesn't say anything about it. I believe because he's going to connect it to the feeding of the 4,000 in a chapter or two, and then to an issue that's going to happen with the disciples. And I'm going to bring it up now, but we're going to really look at it later in that context. But I want to discuss that now, so we'll do that. What's going to happen is, when Jesus is talking about another subject, he's going to say to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples are going to say, We forgot bread. He said that because we forgot the bread. And Jesus is going to say to them, What are you thinking? Don't you remember the 5,000? Don't you remember the 4,000? Why are you thinking about bread? Because they're not getting what he's saying. Because their faith is focused on what they can see. And not who they trust. So we're going to stop there. 
and address anything that you want to talk about this. But I'm going to leave that alone mostly because we're going to talk about it in a week or so. Question. So we're running again? Okay. So the question is, this, this miracle is mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, one of the things that is repeatedly mentioned. So is that because it's such a big deal with the food? It's big for two reasons. Um, one is the people will focus on the bread and see it as this guy can supply what we need now. Okay? And in John's gospel, Jesus will then say, uh, you're only coming to me because I fed you with the bread, but uh, you need to work for the bread that isn't from earth. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he gives that whole discourse about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Again, he's focused on eternal things, not on temporal things. They're focused on temporal things. So that's one reason. The other reason is that the uh, people will begin to say, Oh, look, this guy can destroy Rome. He can heal anybody who gets wounded in the war. He can raise the dead. He can supply the army. We can finally get Rome off our back and establish the kingdom. So they are focused on uh, what they believe are the practical requirements needed. We need to eat every day and we need the Messiah to be a military victor. right? And they're not focused on what he's really doing. So I think that's one of the reasons that this is in there because it was so... Um, um, it's so meaningful in terms of eternal things and so easily misunderstood in temporal context. Yes? You running? Okay, yeah, I think you're, you're right on the button here. Remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Or what you're going to wear. Don't think about those things. The Gentiles are after that all the time. Your father knows you have need of those. Right? But, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These things will be added. So what happens is, and we do this. We focus on the temporal. If there, if there is a miracle, we go crazy. Right? But I always remind people that there is no miracle that God will do in this life that isn't temporary. Because this world has to end. And we're all going to die or be changed in the, in the resurrection. And therefore, whatever happens, even, even something as great as Lazarus being raised from the dead, he had to die again. What is in the kingdom to come is eternal. And therefore, faith looks not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but faith looks at that which is unseen, because the things that are unseen are eternal. And I think you're right, we focus, and that's really the, I think Matthew's point here, it'll really be seen in the next story, that the focus is on the present and the temporal and not on the eternal. Which is why Jesus will say, Oh, you of little faith. Right? So, any others on that one? Yeah. Um, I had a question. I don't know if I'm going to be able to word it well. Um, in a lot of the reading, I do. Okay. 
So I think, I think that part of this replacement thing is that the Old Testament, if you really read it, the commandments are about living today. But the focus is the kingdom to come. But you don't get the focus of the kingdom to come. So then what happens in the New Testament, Jesus is beginning to manifest the kingdom to come in the present. And then people say, oh, well the old's done away with. And now we have the new. If that was true, all of us should be healed. All of us should be fed miraculously. Right? The kingdom, in that sense, is not fully come. Jesus is manifesting it so that they don't think it's too far away. It's near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Living with that tension is what this is about. This is the struggle. There is a struggle in living every day in the world and in the flesh. And also living in the kingdom with the kingdom mindset and trusting in God. We have a tendency to be able to focus on one of those and the other one that goes away. Uh, and Jesus says, if you'll focus on the spiritual, the temporal will take care of itself. We don't quite believe that because the minute we refocus on the temporal, we get trapped in it. Which is what I think is going to happen in the next story. So, I, unless there's a... Okay. Well, I, I, that's, are we running? Okay, so, so I'll tell you where I'm starting to try to switch my focus. I believe, I've, I've often said, if you don't like the commandments of God, you're going to hate the kingdom. Okay? We have a tendency to not look to the kingdom, we look to the new Jerusalem. And I'm trying to get my focus on resurrection and the kingdom to come. When the kingdom comes, I will see a poor person and give to them with a full heart. I don't do that now. I give them half-hearted, sometimes hard-hearted, sometimes not at all, right? One of the things in the kingdom is we will be able to fully... Trust and obey. And our struggle to trust and obey now is preparation in the, in the process of that. So I think it, that's why for me, the more I read the, the Older Testament, the more I realize how practical it is for my struggle today in what I'm trying to do. Because in that context, it will be in its fullness. I want to kind of get a glimpse of what that is now. And I get a glimpse of that in in the commandments and in the covenants. Yep. 
Right. I, I think you're absolutely right, and and it's we can say that it's the I, I can stay eternal perspective often when we're sitting in a hospital awaiting a surgery. I can't seem to do that on the 91 freeway. All of a sudden, that temporal is in my face, and I can't see anything but it. Right, and so I'm trying to I'm trying to work through some of those things. What I was thinking this morning, I, I always go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. It basically says, life sucks and then you die. Okay? And to eat and to drink and to enjoy the labor of your hands is the gift of God. Not because any of those things are significant but because there is that pleasure and praise that Linda was talking about earlier in those things. And when you're focused on the kingdom things and you say, you know, the world, this world's passing away anyway, so I don't have to worry about that right now. I can just enjoy this sandwich, right? That, that's the gift of God. I don't think we enjoy the gifts of God enough because we're thinking the gifts of God are some stupendous thing that will shake the mountains and and you know conquer armies but as you say that's God's job he's going to do all of that he may use us but even then we're not doing it right so i think that 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 really is part of this perspective it's a hard perspective for us to get all right, so I'm going to move to the second story. This one you're also familiar with. And this is where I think Matthew gives us the focus. So in verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. This is great. Jesus says, you guys get in the boat and you go on and I'll say goodbye to the crowds. Right? Jesus is clearly a people person in that sense, right? If I was one of the disciples, I'd say, I'll get in the boat, right? <laughs> right? But, you know, I've been with these people all day. I don't want to see them again. And Jesus is, I'm going I'm dis- to let them go. You guys go ahead without me, right? So he sent the crowds away, and he goes up in the mountain by himself to pray. A common uh, thing with Jesus. And when it was evening, uh, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, and the wind was contrary. So the disciples get in the boat, and all of a sudden, there's a storm, there's water and waves, and we're trying to get here, and we can't get up there, uh, and it's passing. Jesus has been praying, and now he comes in the fourth watch. Fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Okay, And it says, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, we all know this story. We've seen it in the movies. They're out struggling with the boat and the waves and all this stuff. And here comes Jesus walking on the water. Right? Just walking on the water. That's not normal. Right? So you look up. You're fighting the waves. You're worried that you're going to fall in the water. And here comes some person that's walking on the water, right? 
So it says, uh, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. Okay? Okay, not only do we have a storm, but the zombie apocalypse has started, right? And here we go, right? And immediately Jesus says, take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter, this is where we get the uh, kind of spontaneous Peter. Uh, He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. I love this. And when when I was in Israel, we were on the Sea of Galilee, another pastor and I. And we were thinking about getting some Dr. Scholl's pads footpads and putting them on the water and taking pictures of the footsteps and we were trying to decide would would Peter have smaller feet than Jesus and all everyone else was singing hymns and we're 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 doing these stupid things, right? Um, there's a problem in Israel. There are people always climbing out of those boats trying to walk on the water. Okay? It's it's Jerusalem derangement syndrome or something, a Holy Land derangement syndrome that they talk about. People start doing really weird things when they do that. So that was my weirdness. They, we didn't do it. We just thought about it, all right? But I want you to know something. Peter walked on water, okay? He got out of the boat, and he starts walking to Jesus. I always wondered if the other disciples teased him for sinking, Because if that would have been me, I would have said, how far did you walk? Right? Now, I've worked on this. I can walk on wet sidewalk. That's as far as I've been able to get. Right? But any other water, I can't walk on. Right? So Peter walked on water. And he's walking on water. He's got his eyes on Jesus. Jesus told him to come. He's going. That is an act of faith. So, verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Catch it? He's got eternal perspective. He knows whom he believes. He's trusted the Lord. The Lord told him to come. I'm coming. I'm walking on there. And then, I'm standing on water. And that, the waves and the wind, that's rocking the boat. And then, he's on, right? And he cries out, Lord, save me. And the scripture says, immediately, Jesus um, took, it, took a hold of him. And now Jesus says, says the words, You of little faith, why did you die? And they got into the boat and the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly the Son of God. Okay? Now, I want you to catch this. If faith is what matters, then Jesus wouldn't have said, O ye of little faith. He would have just let him drop. Find your own way back to the boat. Every time Jesus says, you of little faith in the Gospels, he does something. He works a miracle or he saves somebody. That's really important. What it says is, we are not here by our faith. 
We're here by His grace. And our faith connects us to His grace. But it doesn't uh, remove us from His grace. Okay? Lord, save me. Jesus immediately grabbed him. Now he rebukes him. But he doesn't reject him in that context. That, to me, when I studied this, this statement by Jesus, every time he said, O ye of little faith, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. He does something for them. In other words, he reinforces, don't you know that I'm watching out for you? Don't you know that I care? Don't you know that I will not let anything destroy you? So they worship him uh, in the boat. This story is important. When he cries out to Jesus, he pulls them up, says, Why did you doubt, you of little faith? I interpret, O ye of little faith, as short-sighted. If I were putting this in a paraphrase, like the message, I would, I would change this verse to say, O you short-sighted one. Because if faith is seeing Him who is eternal and seeing the, the, the spiritual, what happens is we, get our, we quit looking at the things that are eternal and we focus on the temporal and then the chaos happens. Doesn't mean God has abandoned us. It means we don't see Him in it. And when Peter didn't see Jesus also walking on the water, and he thought he was there alone, he starts sinking and he cries out to God. And clearly he wasn't alone. The Lord was with him. This is really an important uh, understanding for us. This is our faith. To trust that he is with us and that the circumstances are not the full picture. None of these circumstances, Romans says, separate us from the love of God who is working in all of those for our good and towards the fullness of the kingdom. The disciples, when they see this, will worship him. But their faith will ebb again, as we will see in the next chapters. So we're going to stop there and look at that and then we'll look at the last few verses here. Yeah. Uh-huh. What about it? Yeah, we are we are saved by grace through faith, not saved by faith. If you believe that faith saves you in that sense, then you are then faith becomes a work. And it becomes something that I have to have enough faith or I won't be saved. Even little faith in Christ is faith in Christ. And Christ is the one who saves. However, to the extent that you trust, you will be calmer going through this chaos than if you're worried about. Now, let me give you an example of this. The grace is that God will get us through. Okay? The faith is, do we trust that God will get us through? So you've all had the experience of being with someone who you knew to be a great driver. You knew they were in control. 
They were solid. And no matter what went on on that road, you just didn't concern yourself because you knew they would see it and they would adjust to it and they were fine. You also have ridden with people who you don't quite have the same view of their driving. Right? And so you start kind of driving too. <laughs> you step on the brake that in there and you, right? you, you guys have done that, right? Uh, that's what I think faith is. Faith is either trusting that God knows what he's doing and he's doing all things well. And therefore, you can see these things as not having eternal significance. They're just noise in the system. Or you can think that they indicate something that I've got to worry about or I've got to figure out or I've got to make uh, an adjustment with, Right? That's paganism. Pagans believe that the circumstances tell them what's going on. We believe that the word of God tells us what's going on. Whether the circumstances tell us or the word tells us, we aren't in control. God is in control. But God isn't communicating through the circumstances. He's navigating through the circumstances. And we are trusting him because he knows the road home. He knows the way home. And he has promised that he will get us there. That's really important. It's easy to forget it. I have to be reminded constantly. I'm sure you do too. But that's really what this is about. And what Jesus was doing with his disciples is showing them that he was in control of everything. And they got it whenever he manifested it. But when he stops manifesting it, they forget it. And that's the issue. It's not faith when he's manifesting. It's faith when he's silent. Faith is trusting God when you don't see him acting. Faith is not trusting God when you see him act. That's just him manifesting himself. We have a tendency to try to go from manifestation to manifestation to manifestation when we should be going from faith to faith, trust to trust, because the one who promised is faithful. Does that make sense? Questions or thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm having a little trouble with the word work there. I think that if faith is work, you are doing it. I don't think that's correct. So let, let me, let me, uh, let's say you have an employee and you say to the employee, I'm going to do this. And they say, then I don't need to? No, I'm going to take care of this. And then you get home and they call you and say, you know, that thing that we need to get is on sale at this place. I, I told you I'd get it. Okay. Then they call you back five minutes later. There's actually a, uh, a two-for-one sale at this place. They're not trusting that you're going to do it. They're worried that they've got to 
let you know so that you won't disappoint them. That's not faith. That's what we do a lot. Faith is trusting. I don't, I don't consider that work. I consider the other thing work. The, the work thing is to say, oh, I believe, but I'm helping God out. Okay? So here's the way it goes. Your, your prayers are very different when you're trusting God. You're saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. You said you'd do it. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm grateful that you're going to do it. I just want you to know I'm anxious about it, right? Whereas if your prayers are, God, do this and do this because this will bring you glory, and then this, and then this will bring you You're giving God his work orders, right? That's not faith. So the faith is our part, but it is a trust rather than a Work. There is a work of faith. The Bible says that faith works by love. Right? And this is where trust and obey comes in. Because if we trust that God's going to do his part, then the question is, and, and I, this part, I like the way you said it, Anya, what's my, what's my work? What do I do? And that's what the commandments are. Okay? The commandments are, here's what I want you to do while I'm doing what I promised. I'm going to accomplish what I promised. You love me. You love one another. You love your neighbor. Right? Well, how will that bring about what you promised? It won't. I'm going to do that. Well, I'm only going to do it if it brings about the kingdom. Because I'm trying to figure out what the kingdom looks like so I can do it. No, just do what I told you. Sometimes what God tells us looks like it's going to do the opposite. That's the testing of Abraham. Here's the son I promised you. Now kill him. Kill him? How, how does that bring about? And what Abraham finally realizes is that if he kills his son, God will raise him from the dead because God's going to keep his promise. So I can trust and obey. And the minute he's ready to do that, God says, don't touch him. I was just testing him. So the reality is, God tells us to obey him because we trust him, not in order to make the promises happen. God's own integrity is why the promises will happen. Not our faith. If none of us believe, God will still do what he said. Our faith doesn't bring about the promise. But our faith gives us a much better ride waiting for the promise than if we're worried at every step that he might be making a wrong turn. So it's that there is an active part of faith, but the active part of faith is the obeying because God will keep his word. Yeah. You talk about the faith where Peter is being able to see Jesus and that it's allowing him the ability to walk on water. Um, they never talk about it specifically in some of the other circumstances, but do you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they looked into that fire, everybody else may not have been able to see him, but they see Jesus. 
that's a great that's a great comparison. I'm not sure that's the case because we don't we don't have any text. My sense is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a higher level of faith than Peter at this point. Their faith is God is able, but if not, we're still going to obey because it can't separate us from God's love. Then what happens is he he's not only able, he does it. And, and that's always a struggle because, and if you've come out of a faith tradition, the faith tradition says if you believe correctly or you believe hard enough, all these good things will happen. And I don't believe that. There are people who hardly believe and the good thing happens. And there are people who believe strongly and it goes bad. And in some sense, it's almost as if the one who really believes doesn't need that. And it goes back to the servant of the prophet when the army surrounded him. And uh, the servant said to the prophet, uh, what are we going to do? And the prophet said, nothing. There's more with us than with them. And the servant goes, are you nuts? And so the prophet says, Lord, open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, the angels of God, the armies of God surrounded them. As Cindy said, the battle is the Lord's, right? Now, I don't believe the prophet saw the angels. He knew they were there. That's faith. Faith knows God is there. Faith doesn't see God. That's why it says, faith as seen. As seen, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. The faith is what is holding us. But it, your, your faith is only as good as what your faith is in. You can have faith in a chair and it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, right? So the, this, this is a real struggle for us. The temporal blinds us to the eternal. And the obedience of God sometimes make us think that we are accomplishing the work of God when God's going to do it himself. But the battle is the Lord's. Yeah? What keeps coming to mind, and I think it was when said last week, was successful faith. Like it used that word and it's kind of a weird word to use. Yeah. Right, I, and I think that's why Paul says, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. In other words, I, whether I live or whether I die, whether I'm in prison, whether I live in abundance or in poverty, none of that matters. All those things are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. So I'm going to... 
find a way to eat and drink and enjoy the labor of my hands along the way. I think that's what Paul's saying in there. It's easy to say. It's not easy to live. But I think that's, that's what our goal is. Yeah. And then when Peter's sinking and, and Jesus takes hold, stretched out his hand, takes hold of him, there's a, still a process of walking back to the boat. And the wind is still happening. Yep. It's when they get into the boat that the wind stops. Yeah. Which really strikes me as. Yeah. Are we going to make? I I wonder if if when Jesus grabbed Peter, he comes back up. I suspect he didn't. I think he's still floundering in the water, right? And Jesus is kind of dragging him along and getting him in the boat, and he's still in the panic of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as soon as they get in the boat, it stops, and they all go, "He really is the Son of God." There, that, that to me is the paganism that has snuck into um, uh, Christianity. Uh, now it's done, not at, we don't do it as pagans, it's just a blurring of that. I'm coming apart here. All right, we're out of time, so let's, uh, let's close in prayer. We'll ring the bell.